Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As you know, life is an existential horror show full of disappointment and loss. Everyone we love leaves us eventually, just as we eventually leave them. As in many human societies, the United States culturally celebrates this grim reality by getting together in the month of October and telling spooky stories about made-up threats, which help us achieve catharsis by simultaneously distracting us from our real problems, while also allowing us to express our fears about the facts of life. Some people consider this fun. The Agora Podcast Network is one such band of merry fools. Every year we get together a show per week in the Agora Podcast Network feed that we call Agoraphobia. Despite my personal distaste for ghost stories, I have participated every year since joining the network, and I will admit, I have had fun. There was that time that I talked about how Martin Luther advised people to defecate in their butter churns to scare away witches. Or there was that time that I talked about how a quack scientist in the post-Civil War era thought that a charismatic apple tree root was evidence of the burial location of Roger Williams, famous founder of the state of Rhode Island. Somehow, every year I avoid telling a ghost story, and yet I find a way to reflect humanity's existential dread in a way that fits my own particular idiom. This year I will discuss the secret monster behind the Highland Clearances of Scotland, a demonic force that drove tens of thousands of Scots fleeing to America and other similarly horrible places. If that sounds good to you, be sure to check out the Agora Podcast Network podcast feed. Link in the show notes. It's its own feed of crossover stuff that we do, and it's fun. There's good stuff there. This month, we have one donor to thank for joining our surried ranks and becoming part of what makes this show happen. Katya shall be known from now until other times as Lady Katya, behind a screen, Chief Justiciar of the Westfold, even though this is technically illegal. Thank you very much to Lady Katya behind the screen, Chief Justiciar of the Westfold, even though this is technically illegal, and to all of our patrons and donors who have gone to the website, gone to the donate page, uh, or the support page, and either donated securely via PayPal or made recurring donations via Patreon. If you wish to join their ranks, do what I just said. I should really script this more. Anyway... Before we continue, I should just tell everyone that today's episode contains subject matter related to sexual violence as it relates to the law. While the content is not graphic, and it relates to how the medieval legal system treated the issue, nonetheless you may wish to exercise caution if you have a history of trauma associated with sexual violence. Thank you very much. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story.
Thistle, the city of Melfi. 1231, while stupering some mundis. Title 20, about rape and violence inflicted on nuns. If anyone presumes to rape nuns or novices, even for the purpose of marriage, he should be punished by death. Title 21, about violence inflicted on prostitutes. It is fitting that all persons subject to the scepter of our rule should be governed by the grace of our majesty. We favour the glory of peace by defending one from another, both men and women, from elders, from minors, and from equals, and by not allowing force to be used at all. Therefore, those miserable women who are marked as prostitutes by their quest for shame should rejoice in gratitude for our favour that no one may force them to satisfy his will if they are unwilling. Those acting against this general edict, after they have confessed and been convicted, should be punished by death. The order of consideration should require that, if force has been used in places suitable for abode, the cry of the woman oppressed should attract attention as soon as possible after it has been emitted. But it will not appear that force was used if a delay of eight days has ensued, unless it is proved that she was detained against her will for that time. Title 22. About those who rape virgins and widows. We order that the capital punishment which the statutes of the Divine Augustuses sanctioned against those who rape virgins, widows, wives, or even engaged girls, and against their accomplices and supporters, should be observed inviolably. Those customs which obtained in some parts of the Kingdom of Sicily until the present, by which those who raped a woman escaped capital punishment by marrying her, or by arranging for another to marry her, should not be permitted at all. The laws of our predecessors as kings of Sicily permitted the judgment by combat and complaints about violences inflicted on any woman at all if the proclamation of these violences was proved within the period assigned by the same constitutions. But, by our holy foresight, we order the removal not only of the judgment by combat, but also of the penalty of forfeiture, both in this case and in all other crimes, except for treason and secret murder. For there is a very great risk for those accusers who can hardly or never prove their accusations by common proofs, since crimes of this kind are hidden from the observations of men who are able to provide testimony of the truth. Therefore, when common proofs fail, and when extraordinary proofs like the judgment by combat have been removed by our law, cases of this kind are left without remedy. Since we are unwilling to dismiss such great crimes unpunished for lack of proof, we have decreed that, if any persons have been accused by violences of this kind by their own confessions as a result of a guilty conscience, or if they have been accused by witnesses who have found the accused in the very acts of sexual intercourse, which cannot happen very often, they should be convicted. Even if we were not consulted, they would be subject to capital punishment both by earlier constitutions and our own. But, if the real truth of the matter cannot be proved, but it is only proved that a woman or another in her behalf has three times denounced someone for tampering with her chastity by his actions or in some other way to keep him from repeating this illegal presumption of his, and if he is later found with the woman who is crying out and calling for the help of others with her screams, and if he is found in a struggle, or in flight, or even in or near the house of this woman, 
or if he holds the woman violently beneath him while he opens the guard of her virginity and corrupts her or attacks her after she has been corrupted while she is crying out, we order that his case should be remitted to the knowledge of our highness after a full discussion. And the aforesaid and similar proofs so that from the opinion of our inspiration, which we shall receive from the hand of God, the case may reach a just decision. But in the meantime, the accused should be handed over to the custody of his pledges, or to jail. Title 23. If anyone should not help a woman suffering violence and crying out. We desire that whoever hears a woman who is being attacked calling out, should hasten to run to her assistance when he hears her. But, if he does not go to her assistance, he should pay four Augustales as a penalty to our treasury for such serious neglect. No one should be able to pretend about hearing the screams to escape the penalty if he was under the same roof, and in the same place where the voice could be heard, and if he is not proved to be deaf or crippled by a severe pain or otherwise ill or if he is not proved to have been sleeping at the time of the screams. Title 24. About the penalty for women who complain unjustly. We curtail the very evil and abhorrent ground for an accusation which has prevailed until now to the serious expense of our subjects, whereby a woman who had not suffered the violence or injury of rape made accusations about some persons untruthfully. And thus, the accused, for fear of the accusation which would be brought or could be brought or which was already brought in so far as they were afraid of the contest of the law courts and the outcome of the affair, chose unequal marriages. Sometimes, also, these women obtained blackmail from their victims for concealing the aforesaid accusations. We desire and command that if any woman should in future be convicted of such false calumny, she should know that she has been caught in a trap of death, and that she has fallen into the pit that she was preparing for the downfall of another, if she had proved what she had given information about. If, at the time for punishment, she is found to be pregnant, we, persuaded by our kindness, desire to postpone the punishment until 40 days after the delivery. After she has been delivered of the child, we order that it should be reared at our expense by our officials who are then in charge of those regions, unless she has next of kin, relatives, or even in-laws whom she may persuade to rear the child with the affection of a relation. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your nice host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 69, Women Part 3, I think? Women and the Law Part 1. In the last few episodes, we've been looking at the way women fit into medieval society, starting with a discussion of historiography, and then a look at how attitudes towards sex shaped social status, and then how women's participation in the medieval economy made the whole economy thing workable. 
Last time out, we had a short discussion of the law as a source, and talked about how the contexts of various law codes and legal documents very much shape what we can take from them as students of history, with the main point being that many law codes are invaluable in telling us how upper-class people viewed the social structure of their society, while also noting that they were unreliable narrators. Many law codes have propagandistic purposes, especially in this time period, and many were just not really implemented due to governmental collapse. And of course, there's the classic issue that these were regional-level documents that were written down and sent out to a illiterate and extremely localized world. Without things like charters, court records, and literary sources, and contracts to show how things may have been implemented in the real world, we often cannot know for sure how far to trust these legal codes. Luckily, we do actually have some uh, charters, contracts, literary sources, and court records, at least in some cases. So what does all this tell us about women? Remember, women, it's a show about women and the early modern period. Anyway, in terms of women, all this law talk has not told us anything quite yet. But the point here is that while literary sources written by monks avoid talking about icky girls unless they are talking about why they need to be kept out of their clubhouses, law codes can provide us with an amazingly comprehensive view of how the person writing them, anyway, thought their society should, could, or did work. And since medieval society was one made up of layers upon layers of social statuses, legal documents can tell us an awful lot about how the status of women as women interacted with their society, especially when combined with court records, charters, contracts, and all that other stuff I just said. And so, while we need to treat this evidence with the pinch of salt due any historical document, these episodes are going to help us draw together all the dangling threads we've left in this larger discussion of women, and we will tie these threads into a nice, neat bow with our final episode uh, concluding this series, which is still an episode or two down the line. Anyway, given the scale of all this, and the theoretical conundrums it involves, I think we can agree that I need to try and focus on some salient points rather than trying to cover every little law I come across. I'm definitely not going back over guild regulations. I think the best way to do this is going to be to focus on two broad conversations. Today I want to focus on the ability of women to present evidence in court, and the implications that that had for their status in society. This will lead to a short but important discussion of the legal status of sexual violence in the Middle Ages, as well as a discussion of women as criminals. Next time out, I will discuss the ability of women to inherit property, which will necessarily include a discussion of dowries and the legal status of women in marriages. This will complement and complete the discussion we had about the sexual roles of women in marriages. So then, if all that sounds good to you, let's get started with today's talk about women in court. If it doesn't sound good, as usual, you have very few choices. Life can be hard. In pre-modern Western societies, women were often treated as invalids by the law. The justification goes back at least as far as Aristotle and Plato, who disagreed about many things, but both seemed to agree that women are just naturally dumber than men. Sure, you could teach them to read if you really wanted to, but you would be wasting your time because they wouldn't immediately start expounding on the intricacies of philosophy, which was really the only thing that made a person human, according to these two guys. As a result, the testimony of women could not be trusted, since they were mentally incompetent and could be subject to manipulation by some man. Whatever the rationalization, the result was that in the Athenian legal system, women were excluded from the courts in most circumstances. They could not sit on a jury, they could not hold political or judicial offices, and they could not present testimony. There was apparently an exception for divorce cases, but it was considered unbelievably shameful for everyone involved. Podcast footnote. 
I should note that there is increasing amounts of doubt as to whether the Athenian legal system was in any way representative of Greek society as a whole. But their records are the most complete we have, and more importantly to our story, they are the most influential on the Hellenistic world that spawned both Christianity and Roman civilization. So they're important to talk about. On the other hand, given that we have few records of actual court cases, contracts, legal documents, etc., we have the conundrum from the last episode to face as to whether the theoretical version of the laws we have matched up in any way to the lived reality. But thankfully, that is an anxiety for Ryan Stitt to worry about, and not me. End podcast footnote. Despite their terrible treatment, women did sort of have one thing going for them. They were considered citizens, and part of the family alliances that made up Greek aristocratic society. It's just that from a legal perspective, they were under the guardianship of the men in their life. Initially, their father, and then the husband. If they were widowed, they would be under the protection of an uncle or similarly proximate male relative. This arrangement persisted in the legal setting, where male relatives represented a woman's property interests in court. The legal status for women in the early Roman Republic was similar to that which we see in the Athenian context, but it changed in the late Republic and uh, continued to change in the Empire. During some periods of the late Republic, women were actually allowed to be advocates in court, and some were known to be very good at it. This practice was eventually circumscribed, but it's clear that from a fairly early date, Roman women were credited with more mental competence than Greek women. I leave the reasons why to the soccer hooligans out there to argue amongst themselves. Ultimately, women in the Roman Empire came to have a wide swath of legal rights, though they did not have full equality. For example, a woman could be a defendant in a legal case and could even initiate a legal case, but she was not allowed to be a witness in an adultery case? I really don't understand why, but many of these law codes are trying to thread a line between giving women rights and acknowledging that they were subject to domestic coercion from men. Which is to say, a woman might say whatever their husbands wanted them to say due to threats of physical violence, and so their testimony might distort the evidence available while also putting them in danger of violence. By the end of the empire, the old idea that the pater familius of the household had full powers of life and death over its inhabitants was no longer really true. Just as it was increasingly discouraged for the head of a household to beat their slaves to death, it was maybe more discouraged for them to beat their wife and children to death. So women could do stuff. Murder was understood to be bad, but these rights were still heavily circumscribed. Now, Iron Age Jewish law regarding women in the courts is a bit of a mess. Modern Talmudic scholars assert that women couldn't provide testimony or be judges. But of course, in the Torah, we have several examples of women being judges in the aptly named Book of Judges. Of course, Jewish law in this context only really matters in terms of what the Christians did with it, and I think it suffices to say that once Christian church institutions started to be established in the mid-Empire period, they tended to follow slightly more conservative Roman legal practices, and then just tried to justify this decision post hoc using scripture. This shouldn't be taken as an insult. By this point, the vast majority of Christians were converts, and it would be honestly weird if they were like, surprise, we're just going to abandon the highly developed Roman legal tradition in favor of some sort of barely understood legal system put together by a bunch of goatherds that no one has used since before the Hasmoneans, and it's all sort of vaguely documented in this book we have. Anyway, suffice it to say, the, uh, the Catholic Church stuck with Roman practices. Moving on. German society is probably the most interesting counterpoint to Roman legal doctrines in terms of the status of women. 
In practice, women's lives were very tightly controlled, but there's some literary and documentary evidence that women were allowed to participate in such political and judicial functions as existed in these societies, at least to the extent of being able to speak in judicial settings. Upper-class women served important public functions in smoothing over relations between the men in these Germanic kingdoms. Interestingly, the early law codes set down by the Lombards and Franks sometimes even give them higher weregelds than men, all else being equal. Which is to say, if you get caught and convicted for killing a woman in my family, and we're of roughly equal social status, the fine you have to pay me is higher than if you had killed me. Podcast footnote. This is often the time where people bring up Tacitus. Tacitus is trash. End podcast footnote. On the other hand, these same legal codes treat women as perpetual minors, as was the case in ancient Greece, and left them theoretically under the constant wardship of male relatives. We can say similar things about Christian-era Irish legal codes, insomuch as women were allowed to speak in court settings and could even have some political or social status, but in practice their lives were bound closely to the men. Unlike in Irish law, German law had provisions for exciting things like the buying and selling of wives, the practice of concubinage, and polygamous marriages, all of which may not have added up to a great position for women, all things considered, although there's some arguments back and forth about some of this stuff. I think the best way to summarize Germanic legal codes is to say that they showed evidence of a culture where protecting women is seen as a vital aspect of masculinity, but that this comes from a context where might ultimately makes right. If someone else comes over here and hurts your women, well, that's the end of the world. It's time for, you know, putting on your horned helmets and going all berserker. As for what the woman does on a day-to-day basis in your household, that's really your business and no one else's business. And, you know, it's ultimately the business of each family, clan, and tribe. Women could have a ton of freedom if they had a strong personality and the men in their life and their family had the predisposition to let them do so. In a culture where the family unit was all important for survival, women could gain lots of status as wives, mothers, and ultimately as elders of the clan. But this was hardly a universal case, and it seems more likely that the men were the ones in control more often than not, because they had the swords. Of course, once the Roman Empire fell and these different people began bopping all around, bumping into each other, the result in any given area was down to random chance, as these different balls of culture began to bounce and bump off of each other, and the leaders of the society began trying to pick rules that were the most ideologically useful to their local situation. The conversion of the Germanic tribes to Christianity was notably influenced by the actions of women, albeit with the presence of papal agents in the background strongly hinted by context clues in most situations. In any case, it is significant, I think, that the status of women in the early Germanic monarchies allowed them to influence, at least in some way, major political decisions like conversion. This power definitely had limits, though, as we can see in the story of a Burgundian wife whose husband was persuaded to convert, but who then also decided to enter into a polygamous marriage with his wife's sister. The wife was noted to meekly submit to the decision. Now, how much truth there is in these stories, which are often part of saints' lives, is an open question. But they do give us some look at the political and legal potential that women had in these early days, at least as far as roughly contemporaneous monks understood the situation. As we get into the era where the first real legal codes and legal evidence emerges, so let's say the 700s to the 900s under the Merovingian Franks, the Visigoths in Spain, and the Lombards in Italy, the picture becomes... clearer? 
As in late Roman law, women did not hold any public offices. Fully explaining what I mean by public offices in this context would be really complicated, and in retrospect, I really should have put this in the last episode, but to very, very horribly summarize a half episode's worth of theory, in this case I mean that women didn't hold any political office that was not inheritable or associated with land ownership. So women were not ever appointed as agents of the king, or diplomats, or military officials. They did not manage royal finances, and were never elected to a town or city council, or to any early representative bodies like a diet or the Wutan. But as I said a few episodes back, there were numerous offices associated with land ownership at this time. They essentially became private possessions of the family, and when a woman led the family, for reasons we'll get into in the next episode, the woman usually fulfilled these expected roles. So she could end up being a judge at manor courts, collect taxes from her tenants, and send her men-at-arms out to war under the command of an appropriate captain who wasn't her. Substitutes were sometimes used in many, if not most, of these roles, and as I said, always in the case of military deployments, but for things like manor courts, this was hardly the rule, no matter how much the Catholic Church gnashed their teeth at this reality. Podcast footnote. Speaking of things like the Diets or the Witan, the case of the Icelandic Althing is a curious case that it's just worth mentioning, and I, I feel like scholars are still arguing about it. I certainly have just made myself confused by looking at the evidence. Icelandic literature seems to indicate that the settlers had a somewhat conservative approach to their culture, as set against the centralizing tendencies of mainland Norway. And so the free participation of women in the Althing might indicate that the deep roots of Old Germanic and Old Norse society had more of a public role for women than we see in some of these other law codes. But I have found no credible mainland evidence for this, and anyway, this is a huge rabbit hole that I just don't have time for, unfortunately. Main point is that Maybe uh, pre-fall of the Roman Empire, pre-conversion Germanic societies did have more of a public role for women like they had in Iceland. But we're working at a couple different centuries of remove and, you know, who even knows. End podcast footnote. These cases where women ended up running the family manor and stuff like that. They were not uncommon, but they were exceptional, and reflected how several layers of public offices had become private affairs as part of the feudalization process that took place over the course of the early Middle Ages. Which is to say, it's not that women were universally agreed to be able to hold public offices, it's just that a lot of public offices had become private. For most women in the Middle Ages, the idea that they would appear in court at all was somewhat anathema to the legal doctrines of the age. As we've said in earlier episodes, the church saw women as descendants of Eve, while the civil authorities followed the Greek doctrine that women were inherently dumb. Women serving as judges was viewed with horror by the church, while women were barred from serving as lawyers based on Roman laws that went back to Augustus. Most of that really only applies to upper-class women. So, looking beyond the hoi polloi, uh, much the same theoretical situation was to be seen amongst the commoners. Laws for women tended to eventually follow late Roman precedent, with women allowed to appear in court as witnesses, defendants on their own behalf, and as advocates for their husband or children when their husband could not serve this role himself. But it does seem like this situation took some time to come into full force, and conditions varied greatly by local region. So, the situation is like a hotel with no vacancies at 11pm. It has a lot of layers. So let's break it down in a bit more detail. 
First off, recall that the early medieval legal system was extremely dependent on witnesses, though these individuals often served a slightly different role from those in modern jurisprudence. In modern times, the role of witnesses is that there are a bunch of people who, you know, saw what happened or saw something important to the wider context of the case. In the medieval system, that wasn't how it worked. The two parties would swear that their version of truth was true, and then amass all their relatives and friends to swear that, while they weren't there, they know Mike, and from way back, and if he says Gilbert did something fishy with that goat, then by golly, I believe him. Furthermore, in many versions of this system, the people making this oath would be expected to help pay fines or bribes in the case that their side lost. Such a system may look like a popularity and wealth contest to us, but that was kind of a feature and not a bug to the people at the time. The system actually systematized the impact of social status on legal decisions, and ensured that judges took such things into account, thus avoiding unpopular decisions, except in the most egregious cases. So the first thing to say is that various versions of the system had different ways of treating women in this context. Essentially, my previous statements about women being subject to informal domination by men is in full force here. If you, as a judge, were to allow women to be given equal weight, and one of the people involved in the trial was a domestic abuser that headed up a large family of women, he could walk into that trial with like 10 people on his side just by threatening his wife, daughters, and grandmothers with violence. Beyond the potential threat of domestic abuse, think of what happens if a guy comes in with all the women in his family as oath helpers, and he loses. Remember, the oath helpers were supposed to help out with the fines, so rather than spreading out the fines over a number of households in the wider community, suddenly the financial punishments are just getting paid by that one guy, which could potentially bankrupt the entire household and subject everybody to legal punishments that could be fairly severe. So usually women were allowed as oath helpers only in situations where they had actually seen something, where there was no one else to serve as an oath helper, or some combination of the two. In some codes, notably a Burgundian law code, they break down what percentage of a testimony a woman represents. Like, a woman can only be an oath helper if there is a second woman also willing to swear, thus making a woman's oath worth one half of a man's oath. I should say the Burgundian Code wasn't enforced for very long, but it is indicative of the kind of ideas being played with at this time. Under these circumstances, you might expect that women were at a disadvantage when actually accusing people of crimes, and you would be right. After all, the core feature of a medieval court case was that two people were standing their oaths in opposition, with other people choosing to back them up. If one person's initial oath is worth one half of the other person's initial oath, well, that makes it pretty easy to dismiss the case right off the bat. And so many of these early law codes simply do not allow a woman to make an accusation at all. Exceptions were made in some systems when a woman actually saw the crime take place, but in many codes, her husband or father would have to make the accusation for her and offer his wife or daughter's testimony as evidence, with his oath as to his believing her being the central seat around which the case would play out. Which is a little complicated, but okay. At the same time, it was generally recognized that there were cases where women had special interests that had to be respected especially as these earlier law codes began to interact with Roman thought and Christianity and began to evolve. The role of women as wives, and especially as maternal figures, meant that their role in a family was to be respected, even in court, in situations where her supposedly quote-unquote natural maternal interests were involved. The most direct example would be if a husband, son, or nephew was murdered and there was no other adult males to lead the case against the killer. Remember, in medieval legal systems, there were no police or prosecutors. 
or should I say, the police, prosecutor, and judge were sort of the same person, but they had no explicit role of being out in the community and seeking out crimes. Instead, the injured parties would have to bring the crimes to the Lord's attention, convince them that a wrong had been done, and press the case. Given the mortality rates of the era, it was not unheard of for a woman to end up as the head of a household and end up being responsible for prosecuting the killers of her only remaining adult male relative. Beyond the practicalities of the situation, the grief of a wife and mother and the newfound need of the family for male protection made these cases of special interest to the political classes of the time, secular and religious. And so special exceptions were carved out in the law to allow women to represent their interests in court in these cases. So much for the theory. In practice, women were found in court from almost the first medieval legal documents we have, often in fairly humdrum economic cases, and you can probably see the reasons why from what we've already said. The theoretical constructs we just talked about were so complicated and backwards, and the forms of the court proceedings at this time were ridiculously simple. We're, we're talking about a courtroom where we've got a local knight sitting on an upturned crate at the local church, listening to the villagers complain about each other. In that situation, are we really going to follow this ridiculously complex backwards legal procedure where the husband has to enter his wife as testimony and then swear that he believes her and that he believes that a crime was committed and then other people... It's ridiculous. And if a woman is the only witness to a really serious crime, are you really going to let a murderer continue to circulate amongst your ranks by ignoring that evidence entirely? Are you really going to do that? Beyond these kinds of practicalities, the fact was that in the wider legal system, as we've already discussed, women were doing stuff economically, and that created situations where a slide into economic representation was probably inevitable. Though again, in the early Middle Ages, men were supposed to represent their wives' interests in court if they were available, women who were on their own and who held property or who were active in business were eventually permitted to represent themselves in what we might call civil cases, though the distinction was less clear at the time. Basically, if Steve had cheated Heather out of some sheep, Heather was allowed to accuse him in court, and her testimony had to be considered, at least in many jurisdictions. Over time, this kind of situation became more common and comfortable, at least outside of Italy. By the 1100s, as the economy began to really kick into gear, legal authorities in towns and cities found that even this situation was not quite cutting it. The traditional idea had been that women always subsumed their economic interests into the household, but as we discussed in the episode on the economy, this was simply not the case for many middle-class women, or at least the execution of this idea created many legal gray areas. For example, let's say a woman is engaged in the buying and selling of household goods while her merchant husband is off at sea just in terms of buying tableware for the household and arranging the sale of eggs from the estate. Now say something goes sour in a business transaction. How does the court case proceed? Do they have to wait for the husband to return? That could take months or even years, and the person trading with the wife might only be in town for a few days. Even if the husband got back, what value would his testimony really even have? And he was out at sea at the time the transaction took place. Even if the husband was at home, what if the wife has her own business, as was, you know, fairly normal? While technically all household goods were considered to be held in common, if the wife was a bronzesmith and her husband was a miller, would he really be able to present any kind of useful testimony about his wife's business dealings? Wouldn't having him testify in support of the wife just recreate the problem of women offering oath help for men, but in reverse? There was no universal solution to these problems. 
In Italian cities, the only concession generally was that women were allowed to buy and sell household items on their husband's behalf and could testify in court in the specific instance of the husband being out of the country for a very long period of time. In London specifically, and in England in general, it was eventually decided that men should not be held accountable for the business dealings of their wives whatsoever, and so women would need to be allowed to appear in court in relation to business transactions on their own behalf. So while women remained at a disadvantage socially in northern and western European court settings, and while their interests were generally subsumed with the families under normal circumstances, some exceptions were being carved out over time, in some jurisdictions, as circumstances required. Now let us return to the early Middle Ages. We've covered a woman's standing in court as an officer of the law, as a witness, and as a plaintiff. One last role remains before we turn to the episode's climax and denouement. That is, women as defendants. In short, women could definitely be accused of crimes in the early Middle Ages, but their status as legal infants made for some strange permutations in our eyes. In some very early law codes, the woman was held not to be responsible for her actions. Fines were usually meted out to the husband or father, in the same way as a pet owner might be punished for damage caused by a pet. As with pets, the general exception came in cases where corporal punishments were needed, such as when a punishment of death or mutilation was called for. In these cases, the courts took the relatively reasonable view that they would not put a husband to death for the crimes of a wife, but then such punishments could also usually be moderated by the payment of a fine. Given the cultural stigmas around a family allowing physical harm to come to their women from outsiders, families usually found ways to scrape together the resources to pay the fines and avoid the physical punishments. It's hard to tell what prevalence this women-as-pets concept had, but it's fairly clear that by the time we get into the later early Middle Ages and the High Middle Ages, the drift we noted earlier in the status of women in legal settings had occurred with their status as defendants as well. For most of the Middle Ages, in most places, if a woman was accused of a crime or was being sued for damages, she would be sued directly. Of course, in some sense, this just replaced one level of artifice in the legal system with another, since most women were considered to hold their property in common with their husbands, so any fine payment would have to come from their common property, or at least from the dowries their husbands managed. More on dowries next episode, but suffice it to say that the husband in the High Middle Ages might be offered the choice of paying his wife's fines or letting her be subject to gruesome or humiliating corporal punishments. And given that reputations tended to be collective in families, it seems that most husbands paid the fines. With that context in mind, it's worth saying that a big part of this entire system was predicated on men within the family units keeping, quote-unquote, their women in line with coercion or, you know, physical violence, so long as that violence was not committed by outsiders. I think that most of us would not be surprised to find that domestic violence was widely tolerated in the Middle Ages, but actually I was surprised at how circumscribed the practice was, if you'll permit me a little bit of a tangent here. In short, the Roman idea that the paterfamilias had the power of life and death over the members of his family household just did not make the jump into the Middle Ages, at least not outside of Italy, and not in de facto practice. The position of the man as the head of the household was of course respected, and his right Nay, his duty to beat his wife and children was considered sacrosanct, but the church and secular authorities had come to feel that it could be taken maybe too far. Many church leaders write about how the savage beatings of the wife for not cooking dinner properly should be merely corrective in nature, intended to instruct, and the husband should find no joy in the activity. 
In general, and in an era with very poor sonic insulation, neighbors and the church actually had a wide scope to intervene if it was felt that a husband was getting out of control. In many areas, there were structured systems of mediation where a couple was required to submit to what we might call counseling by the local priest who was expected to explain to the husband the importance of domestic tranquility to the salvation of his soul. Meanwhile, the priest was expected to instruct the wife of the importance of obedience. Excuse me while I retch slightly. Anyway, if things continued to devolve, the wife was allowed to leave the husband and could often find sanctuary with the church, though she could never remarry. Again, more on this next episode. Economic and social realities tended to push women in such circumstances to try and reconcile with their husbands, again under the mediation of the priest. Any children would generally stay with the husband, although this varied greatly by jurisdiction and the opinions of the authorities on the matter. This is all deeply insufficient from a modern perspective, with the knowledge that we tend to have these days of the pathologies of abuse. And of course, the reality of the situation on the ground would have involved a lot of variation based on the personalities of the people involved and how well they were regarded in the community. A popular wife with a truly committed and conscientious priest and with a local convent to turn to for support might well have escaped from a situation relatively intact even with her children. If any of those positives were not in place, things could obviously go very badly. The one thing we can say that's sort of a positive is that a husband who beat his wife or child to death was very unlikely to get away with it in the Middle Ages, since everyone knew everyone's business. There was almost no sound insulation in these houses, and contrary to Roman custom, such actions were viewed with total horror by the authorities. This is not much of a silver lining, I have to say. One thing worth observing very quickly before we move on is that women committing such acts of violence as to require physical punishments were exceedingly rare. We don't have time in this episode to dwell on the reasons why, but suffice it to say that in most pre-modern, pre-feminist societies, there seems to be a tendency for women to commit crimes at much lower rates. This could be an issue of them simply not being caught. Traditionally, feminine ways of enacting revenges of passion, including poison, might be hard to catch. But that said, there also seems to be a cultural aspect to this whole thing as well, in terms of what women think themselves capable of doing. In modern societies, rates of crime committed by women remain low relative to those committed by men, but the relative difference shrinks year after year. Now, as a transition, there are two exceptions to the rule that women tended not to commit serious crimes. The biggest is sexual immorality, which we'll address shortly. The saddest is the issue of infanticide, which we definitely need to discuss, even though it's more depressing than a sick kitten. In an era without effective birth control, sex education, or safe abortions, unwanted pregnancies were a thing that happened. For upper-class women, it was embarrassing. For the lower classes, it could be devastating. Beyond the legal ramifications that we will discuss shortly, poor households simply could not necessarily feed extra mouths, and a woman who gave birth out of marriage could make herself essentially unmarriageable, limiting her long-term prospects and making herself a burden to her family, as well as adding this extra mouth. Between the fear of legal consequences, social stigma, and economic implications, the records are just simply full of women who killed their babies out of desperation. Again, unlike in the ancient world, the church did consider this a crime. The women convicted of these acts could be subjected to severe punishments up to and including execution. And it's really hard to find a bad guy in this situation. No one in the modern world, let alone me, would argue that infanticide is okay. On the other hand, it's hard not to feel bad for the young women caught up in circumstances they often did not really understand. 
For its part, the church often interceded on the woman's behalf, noting the extenuating circumstances and pleading with the civil authorities for mercy. Women often attained this assistance by claiming something like temporary insanity, that they'd been driven mad by fear or the realization of the terrible implications of their, their actions. Mercy of some kind was often granted, but definitely not always. And even if it was granted, the outlook for the women involved was not great. In the best case, she would be exiled to live in another community, usually with relatives, or she would be sent to a convent, though that avenue was rarely open to poor families, it was more rich and middle-class families that got that out. More often, she would be subject to a lesser punishment, along with all the social and economic stigmas already noted. She also would very likely wind up being prosecuted for the violation of sexual norms that led to the baby's existence in the first place, that other major crime for which women found themselves in court. In addressing this issue, I would like briefly to touch on the issue of crimes of sexual immorality before concluding the episode by finally discussing, at length, for the first time in this entire series, issues surrounding sexual violence in the Middle Ages, which is long overdue. As you know from the previous episodes, sexual morality was a major concern for the governing classes of the Middle Ages. It was felt that it was part of their role to ensure the uh, morality of the community, and sexual morality was considered a big part of that. The punishments assigned to individuals for crimes of sexual immorality, and we're, we're talking about consensual for, for now, the, the punishments assigned were as severe, if not more so, than those assigned for many violent crimes. Notably, in Western Francia and in the Iberian Peninsula, sexual immorality was one of the few crimes that could result in a person being enslaved. And it was the woman who ended up being enslaved, I should say. In Francia, families were usually expected to buy the woman out of this punishment. But in Iberia, such a recourse was actually banned. Uh, it was expected that she had to become enslaved. We will get more into penal servitude in future episodes. As was usual in the Middle Ages, different punishments were assigned to different types of people, and this was true of men and women found guilty of the same sexual crimes. I'm not clear that men got off lighter, to be honest. For example, in many places where the woman was to be enslaved, the man was to be whipped to death publicly. Uh, enslavement was not a great fate, obviously, but being whipped to death publicly is also not a great fate. Legal authorities of the time may have felt that enslavement was more of a merciful option than public execution, but they also may have been convinced of a sort of poetic justice, given the sexual nature of uh, enslavement for women in the Middle Ages in general. Class, of course, uh, was a much bigger factor in uh, the kind of punishment that you ended up with. Firstly, because wealthy families were just less likely to have a member convicted, and even if they were convicted, buying their way out of punishment was much easier. More broadly, upper-class men who quote-unquote seduced lower-class women were generally assessed fairly minor fines for their actions, while the women in question might suffer serious physical punishments depending on the jurisdiction. On the other hand, if an upper-class man was convicted of raping a woman, the punishment could be quite severe indeed, and might actually be a stronger punishment than if he had killed her. Which is a bit of a grim incentive, now that I think about it. Indeed, medieval courts viewed rape as an extremely serious crime, and at least on paper gave victims of rape fairly extreme levels of satisfaction compared to other crimes committed against women. For example, the quotes in the intro to this episode laid out some very severe punishments for rape. In Germanic legal codes, it was not uncommon to find that the fine for rape was higher than that for murder. But this brings us back to the question of standing, because we must inevitably ask, in the early Middle Ages, when women were entirely under the guardianship of men, 
how do they present rape charges in court? It seems likely that in some of the more traditional Germanic jurisdictions, the man would be the one presenting the charges. In these systems, he was the injured party, since his property, i.e. the woman's sexual morality and reputation, had been damaged by the actions of the rapist. However, all the other issues discussed today seem to have been amplified in rape cases. Many jurisdictions that gave women no standing in any other situation did give them standing to present accusations specifically in cases where they had been raped. Rationales and conditions varied. In many cases, women had standing only if there was no male protector, though this seems to not have been common even early on. It seems that a woman's reputation was considered naturally to be her concern, while the sexual morality of the community was considered to be of paramount importance for social stability and the standing of the political classes with God. As a result, allowing rapists to go around acting with impunity was seen to be likely to cause a breakdown of sexual morals, and so it was necessary to allow women to help to police this behavior. So women had standing in court, and on paper they had a good hope of satisfaction if they achieved a conviction. How likely was a conviction? Well, as you might expect, this is where things get more difficult. Rape is a crime that often leaves absolutely no physical evidence. Even in the modern era of scientific forensics, sexual violence can be impossible to detect after only a very short time. So unless a rapist was so stupid as to commit a rape in broad daylight and in view of witnesses, in the Middle Ages it became very easy for these cases to derail. In short, these cases were a classic example of his word against hers, which could be a problem given that the courts were used to treating a woman's word as having half the value of a man's. This could have serious consequences for the woman. Many, though not all, jurisdictions had punishments for failed rape accusations, with the rationale being that the seriousness of the punishment for a conviction made a spurious accusation equivalent to attempted murder. Even in jurisdictions without such laws, a woman who made a rape accusation who failed to achieve a conviction could easily be seen as having presented evidence of her own sexual immorality. After all, if the man got off by saying the sex was consensual, that would expose the woman to the whole gamut of punishments meted out for consensual sexual immorality. Of course, this would also expose the man to the same punishments, and as noted, these were not insignificant depending on the status of the man in question, but, you know, it's better than being, you know, horribly killed. On the other side of the coin, the medieval justice system, if you will, was not unused to crimes with no evidence. This was kind of par for the course. As we've said before, the entire system was really based on an assumption that there was no real ability to deduce what happened from physical evidence, witnesses, and testimony that we do today. Instead, the case would be based on the willingness of the community to act as oath helpers for the various parties. Given that these oath helpers could be expected to help pay any resulting legal fees, this was not necessarily as much of a popularity contest as it might, might seem, though certainly a wealth contest. Members of the community who knew the people involved might decide that, no matter how much they liked Bill, it seemed like he might be lying this time, and that might just be a bad risk given how the crops were doing this year. On the other hand, political and financial incentives were obviously a part of this. If Bernadette's dad was the village reeve, you can bet she'd have a line around the block to act as hoth helpers. None of this has much to do with our concept of justice, and a girl from a poor and unpopular family who was raped by a noble was likely to be up a certain creek. On the other hand, it's not like our modern system has a great track record with this stuff, to be fair. Just as an example, over the last few years we've learned of dozens of police departments across the United States that have simply failed to get around to processing thousands, tens of thousands of rape kits that they've had sitting in cold storage, just sort of waiting for them to find the time. 
In some cases, they've been there for a decade or more. It's entirely possible that, when combined with the standard social controls in place at the time, and the tight-knit small communities, an arbitrary system based on community support might have done a better job of preventing or prosecuting rape than our modern system. I don't think this is likely, but it's hard to know for sure, and I consider it a reasonable possibility, given what we've learned recently. I would personally not want to be a woman in the Middle Ages being targeted by a sexual predator, but I feel like that probably goes without saying, and the temporal qualifier probably does not add much to the statement in any case. I think that really sums up most of today's discussion. I wouldn't want to be a woman in court in the Middle Ages, but that's kind of an inappropriate standard. The more complete picture of this issue is nuanced and varied widely by time and jurisdiction. In earlier Germanic codes, we see evidence that women were very much subjected to the legal guardianship of male leaders of their family group. But then, most people were. In a legal system based on fines and oath-helping, family bonds were the key to the system, and no legal case went forward without the agreement of the male heads of household. Over time, this system became unworkable in many cases for men and women, but in case of women, it became particularly unworkable, and women were given more standing as individuals in court. These changes came about because of lots of widespread social changes, but in particular because of economic changes and also because of the increasing concern that the uh, increasingly Christianized elite of Europe had with sexual morality in the community and the key role that women had in policing this behavior, both as victims of assault and as persons engaged in adultery. As victims of sexual assault, their position might seem very poor by modern standards. And undoubtedly it was, but we should probably not be too self-satisfied with this view. A system that was largely arbitrary and based on explicit social biases may ultimately not have been just, but it would have allowed families to protect their own in many cases by making use of the social alliances that were the very heart of the feudal system. Of course, this would do nothing for those without alliances, and for those fighting for justice uphill, as it were, against the class structure of the time. For these people, the system would probably have been cruel and arbitrary. But then, our system can be cruel and arbitrary as well. In any case, that's it for today. Tune in next time as we delve into the fascinating realm of marriage, property law, and divorce. It will be a humdinger of a good time, at least in comparison to today's episode. Probably. But to listen, you'll have to tune in next time for another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. listening to this episode again, uh, I just feel the need to point out I only scratched the surface of basically every single thing that I talked about in this episode. This episode is certainly not definitive. Um, and, uh, you know, the issues of women in the law and women in sexual violence, you know, we're going to be doing another women in the law episode next time, but, um, the issues of women in sexual violence are going to come up again in this show. Uh, probably several more times. So, just wanted to uh, to say that. Thank you very much. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 